Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Chipper, I am not going to pretend I feel really tired. And it just hit me, dawned on me that three of the four teams that I picked to go to the final four are out. And so I'm uh, just a little discouraged right now. And my favorite team, Cal, lost too. So it's just all around difficult morning for me right now. (laughs) I don't know why it just hit me, but I just realized it. So. I'm not going to fake it. We're, uh, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't got to meet you, welcome. We're really happy you're here. We're going to take a, or we're going to receive an offering right now. Um, something we love to do as a part of our worship. We love to reflect God and giving and uh, being a part of his mission together. And th- that women's retreat's a perfect example of uh, ways that we like to invest as a church and help send women up the hill and uh, make a way for them if they don't have the funds. So um, you get to be a part of that um, by, by giving. It's, it's, it's really cool. So, um, And you also support the dads that will be attempting to bring their kids to church that Sunday. The women are gone. It's, it's, it's something else. You know, those poor kids walk in in pajamas and like, ah, uh, you know, ponytail. Maybe they ate, maybe, they, maybe there's, there's, there's Cheez-Its there, kid. Don't, you don't need breakfast, you know. So. It's, it's always a fun Sunday together. I like that Sunday. To, yeah. I bet the 11 o'clock service will be massive. Like, <laughs> nine, you know, 9 a.m. is pushing it. So we're going we're gonna to receive an offering. We're going to sow into what God's doing. I'm going to pray for that. Would you guys pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, uh, that you are alive. We're celebrating you today. And thank you that you're working and moving in this city and you've invited us into it, God. And it's just a privilege, Lord, to reflect you today. You're so generous toward us. and uh, We just want to reflect that generous God back to this world, Lord. And so we give willingly and gladly, joyfully today. Lord, we love being a part of what you're doing. And we're here to worship you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, today we are completing this seven-week series we've been in called Redemption, looking at the book of Exodus. Today is the day. It's, it's going away today. It's been a good seven weeks for me uh, personally. It's been stretching as God's in his, uh, in his grace has revealed some things to me and shown me areas of sin in my life, areas of complaint and I am very aware, probably more aware than ever, of how uh, in need I am for redemption. I just am aware of my brokenness, and, uh, and that's good. That's a good thing to be aware of. Hopefully, though, that's not the only thing that, that's coming up for us. Um, it's a good thing to be aware of where things aren't right, but if that's all we see, if all we see is what's not right and nothing else, we'll soon despair, right? We'll, we'll hang it up. We'll give up. 
And we want to see, we want to know that, that written all over these pages is the committed love, the covenanting love of God who's so committed to us. He's more committed to you being free from that sin than you are committed to yourself being free from that sin. He is just for us, and he's moving on our behalf. So it's great to be aware of where things aren't right, but we also want to be aware of God's committed, covenanting love that is on a rescue mission, like we were singing. Love came down and rescued us. We, we want to be aware of both those things so we don't despair. Our um, hope... Our hope for change, our hope for anything being different, these areas that we'd love to see change, our hope rests in God. It rests that he doesn't change. His unchanging, committed, abounding love. That's, that's where our hope rests. It's not in us figuring it all out or, you know, getting to the root of the root of the root of where we sin. Our hope's in Jesus. And that's, that's uh, where we're headed. I have some um, bad news, though. We've been working through this book of Exodus, and today's called The Promised Land. And the Israelites don't actually get to the promised land in the book of Exodus. So, kind of a bummer. I should have read the whole book, I guess, before, <laughs> before <laughs> starting out on this series. Oh, we'll call it Promised Land at the end. And then I'm, oh no, there's like three more books, you know? So, <laughs> sorry. Sorry to discourage you, so... So if the book of Exodus isn't about this promised land, if it's not, even though they talk about it often, God t- tells them, I'm leading you to a land flowing with milk and honey. So if the book of Exodus isn't about a promised land, a destination, what is it about? Why have we been studying it? One way that you can um, kind of try to grasp what the main theme of a, a book of the Bible is, this is a helpful tool that I, I've found. Um, I didn't invent it. You know I don't mean that, right? I, I found it. Um, I was taught it. One tool is that you can read the, the beginning, the first part of the book, and the last part of the book, the, the, the top and the tail, so to speak, and see if there's any things that are similar, any similar themes, words, uh, events taking place. And oftentimes, um, the way the, the biblical writers would write is they'd kind of bookend it like that. So if we do that with the book of Exodus, how does the book of Exodus start? It starts, do you guys hate those questions that are like, am I supposed to, you know, yeah, good job, I'll answer it. Uh, It starts, the Israelites are in slavery, right? They're in bondage. They're building as slaves Pharaoh's kingdom. Pharaoh was like a god. He was god to the Egyptians, and the Israelites are building that kingdom for that lower G god for Egypt. That's how it starts. So, does the book end with them going back into slavery. If it does, you're really going to walk out of here and think this whole series was a big sham. No, it doesn't end. But the book of Exodus ends. The, four, the last four chapters in the book of Exodus ends with this detailed account of the Israelites building God's tabernacle. God's tabernacle is that fancy word for where God dwells. It's where his presence would dwell, where they would worship and encounter God. And so the last four chapters ends with them building this thing. And in fact, the last few lines of the whole book, we hear that God's presence falls on that newly established tabernacle. Like his presence comes so thick that even Moses can't go in. 
Moses, the guy that like got to talk to God as a friend, like it says, face to face with God. He can't even go into the tabernacle because it's so thick. So that's how it ends. Slaves in Egypt building a tabernacle for God's presence. It's not about the promised land for the Israelites. It's not about the destination. Redemption is about God taking these former slaves and his presence being with them and leading them to now use those former slave hands to build his tabernacle. They were once building a kingdom for a false god, and now they end by building a kingdom for the, the living God, giving the, building the place where God would dwell. That's a, a great picture of redemption. It talks about the Spirit falling on these craftsmen and artisans, and they're, they're, they're so creative, and they, they, uh, they, they, they build this really beautiful place for God's presence to dwell. That's how it ends. It starts with them building the, this, this kingdom with bricks, without straw, and it's terrible. And they're wondering, where is God? And then it ends by them building again, but they're building God's temple, God's tabernacle, I should say. And his presence is there. That's redemption. More than a promised land, more than a destination, redemption's about getting enrolled into God's purposes. Redemption is, the prize of redemption is God's presence. The prize of redemption is God's presence and his, his purposes become our purposes. That's redemption. They're still in the wilderness when this is going on. They're not yet to that fulfillment of the promise. They're still wandering. And we get this picture of how God redeems us by giving us himself, by enrolling us into his purposes. And this kind of work, it's happening all around us, even here in this church. Like, this has literally happened. God, God is literally taking slaves, people that were in bondage to sin, and leading us into his presence, like giving us himself, and giving us a pretty good job to do. Like, something that, that, that fulfills and is a part of his kingdom. This is not a plug to go into full-time ministry. These, these were artisans, craftsmen, building things. And they were doing God's work. That's, that's redemption. Those hands that used to be slave hands building for a false god are now those same hands are building God's tabernacle. It's incredible. Next week, we're going to celebrate baptisms, right? It's Easter. We're going to rally around some friends, getting baptized. We're going to cheer for them, pray for them. It's going to be awesome. But if, if our view of redemption ends, let's say at baptism, ends at that moment when it's fine, like we're, we're saved. Or if your view of uh, redemption ends when you're finally free, you're finally not sinning in this way or struggling in that way, or you finally aren't lonely. Like if that's your view of redemption, that when this changes or when this is different, you don't have God's vision for redemption. Because you know what's going to happen. We're going to baptize these people. It's going to be awesome. We're going uh, to celebrate the new life that they're stepping into. But they're going to get up out of that water. We're going to pray for them. And then they're going to go home to the same marriage, probably. They're going to go home to the same kids. The same job will be waiting for them on Monday. Like, it'd be awesome if it's like you go down the water and you come up and it's like, whoa, I got a whole new life. Like, this is awesome. My wife's understanding. My kids are obedient. I got a raise. I only got to work like one day a week and they love me. I mean, that would be, that would be a promised land kind of experience, right? But that doesn't happen. And yet we say we're redeemed. 
because redemption is about God being with us in that marriage, with us with our kids, with us at that job. That's, that's being redeemed, him taking us where we were formerly enslaved to something. And now we're walking in his presence, free from that punishment of sin. All the while looking ahead, looking forward to our, our great hope, that's Jesus. So our story of redemption can't end at some destination. Once I'm free, once I don't do this, once this is gone, or once this relationship's put back together. If that's redemption for us, we don't have God's vision. So the nagging question we got to ask today that I want kind of rattling around in your brains as, as I'm talking. The nagging question that I'm asking me, I'm asking you, is Jesus your promised land? Is Jesus your promised land? Is he the end? Or is he a means to some other end for you? Is Jesus just the means to fix this or that and then life will be good? Is Jesus your promised land? So we're going to look at a story, uh, something that happened in Exodus chapter 33. That's where we'll be reading. So you're welcome to turn there. Exodus is toward the front of your Bibles. If you didn't uh, bring a Bible, we'll have verses up for you to follow along. Exodus 33 is where we're going to be. I'm going to pray as we, as we uh, look into God's Word. Holy Spirit, would you revive us, your people, God? Thank you for the, that reminder as we were singing that we're alive, God. We just are looking to you, Holy Spirit, to lead us into all truth. We're looking to you to reveal Jesus to us, God. I'm not content, Lord, to just check off a box or take some really good notes today or say something that's profound. Lord, I, we want you, Jesus. We want to know you. So would you be present with us as we, as we read your word, God, as we study it? We love you in Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus 33, right before this happens is that story of the golden calf. We talked about a couple weeks ago. The Israelites are uh, down um, waiting at the base of a mountain that Moses has gone up to get God's law. God's, you know, teaching the Israelites how to live, how he wants them to live as his covenant people. And they get impatient, and so they build a calf, a cow made of metal, of gold. And they worship it and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Because they were impatient. Moses was gone too long. So God's not happy about it. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. And then Moses intercedes. He steps in. He says, God, remember your promise. Remember your covenant to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember it. Lord, don't, don't wipe them off the face of the earth. And God relents. It's a, it's a, a really cool story, uh, of, especially of Moses stepping in, interceding, uh, uh, begging God, so to speak, you know, to, to relent. Um, so that has just happened. And then God tells them they're going to leave Sinai. And because of their sin, their sin of idolatry, because every sin has consequences, right? We're, we're set free from the punishment of sin, absolutely, but we're not always set free from the consequences of sin. Sometimes our stupid choices, we have to deal with some consequences. And that's tough. So a consequence of the sin is, is that they're going to leave Mount Sinai and God tells them, I will not go with you. 
That's kind of a turn of events. He says, my presence, my presence cannot go with you, Moses. He says, I'll send an angel. I'll send an angel before you to lead you to the promised land so you'll still get the promised land. You'll still get everything that you want, but I myself, I cannot go with you. And the reason he gives, gives is that if I go with you guys, Moses, I will consume you. Like, I, I, it's, I just can't help but be holy. And you're sinful. And I can't, it just doesn't mix too well. Like, you're going to be consumed, so it's better that I don't go with you. I'll, I'll send the angel. You'll still get the promised land, everything that I told you. But I, myself, am not going with you. And when we read that story, it says that this was a devastating word to the Israelites. A devastating word. They start mourning. They take off all their pretty jewelry, and they mourn. They're just undone. Why? Would they be undone? I mean, keep in mind, they're still going to get to the promised land. They're still going to get to where God says they will get. And they get an angel to lead the party. Not a bad deal, right? But they're devastated. They're devastated. Because God's presence was everything for them. More than a promised land, God's presence was everything for them. God's presence was with them in Egypt as they suffered. God's presence led them out of Egypt with miracles and plagues, signs, wonders. God's presence parted that Red Sea, freed them from their enemies. He provided for them miraculously with food. I mean, God's presence was everything. He was leading them by a cloud, a pillar of of cloud and a pillar of fire. And now they were going to lose it. Because they had sinned, they were going to leave Mount Sinai, move toward the promised land, but God said, my presence cannot go with you. The reason that I know that his presence was everything for them, because earlier in the story, God talks about redeeming them, and he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel. Like that that was kind of, that's kind of the summary of his saving plan. I will dwell with them. I will live among them as their God. And they will know that I am their God. That's redemption. Not a promised land. God was their promised land. And now he was saying, I'm, I, I, I'm not going with you guys. So how does Moses respond? I love Moses. So Exodus 33, um, 15. We're going to start reading at verse, uh, verse 15. And he said to him, so Moses says to God, Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? When God says, I'm not going with you, I'll still send you the promised land, the angel will be with you, Moses says, no, no. I don't want to go anywhere that you're not going. How else will people know that we're on this earth will know that we're distinct or any different? It's your presence. If your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. Is that how you and I would respond? If God gave us everything we needed, everything we wanted, but said, I'm not going to be with you anymore, would we respond that way? If he said, you can still gather together as a church, Come on Sundays, you guys seem to like each other, keep hugging each other, have meals together. It's great. You can keep doing that, but I, I'm not going to be with you guys. 
I mean, would we take off our jewelry? Would we mourn that? Would that be a devastating word? God's presence was everything to these people. If redemption for us ends once A, B, or C is different, if it ends once we arrive in the promised land, we don't have God's vision for redemption. It's it's his presence. It's him being with us. God dwelling among us. That's what saves us. That's, That's our hope for redemption. You can... If you really want to get to the bottom of if you would, how you would honestly answer that question, like if you had everything but God, how would you react? You can imagine heaven, right? I don't know if you guys ever think about heaven. I try not to because my brain starts hurting and I get like kind of sweaty. And it's like, oh, I can't imagine it. But, um, but imagine heaven. You get to heaven, your life's over, you've run the race, and you get there and you, you, all your friends are there, all your family made it. The food's awesome, your body is awesome, you've maybe lost a few pounds or your muscles are bigger, whatever, whatever it is, like, it's like you're whole. You have everything. You get to sit down for dinner across from Moses and ask him about that interaction. It's, a, it's, it's incredible. Would, would, wouldn't that be satisfying? And what if all those things were there? All your kids were there, all your family made it, your grandpa that you've never met and you finally get to talk to. The food's awesome, your body's awesome. What if all of that was there and God wasn't? Would you be content? Or flip that. Flip, turn that question around on itself and think, if I, if I was in heaven and none of those things were there, if none of my kids made it, like maybe my body doesn't turn out so good. I mean, like nothing, but God's there. Is it enough? I know that's not how heaven rolls, but just, just, just to think about it. Is God your, your, your everything? His presence, is it everything? Do you have promised lands, right? We all have promised lands, but do you have promised lands that are godless, that it doesn't matter if God's there or not? It's a promised land. It's a hope. It's something I'm grabbing onto, that I'm moving toward. I have plenty of them. I was very aware of one this weekend. I was out of town for a class, so I'm leaving late on Thursday night, driving down to L.A., and I'm not even out of my driveway yet. And I start having crazy, fearful thoughts about my family dying. Like, it's not even, it's not even, I don't even have any, have to expend any effort. I just think of it. Like, what if something happens while I'm gone? Did I lock the door? Are they going to be okay? You know, all these thoughts. And I, I start to lose track of where I'm at. I get all, like, I start imagining what I would do to the person that hurt them, and it's not a godly thought. And I'm sweating, and I, I'm like in Bakersfield at this point. And it's like, how did I get to Bakersfield? Because for me, a healthy, living family is a promised land. If I have a healthy, living family, I'm okay. I can get through just about anything. As long as my family is okay. I just saw so apparently like, wow, I'm so afraid of losing that. And if I had that, and, and the, the scarier part is that I can go days without thinking about God's presence with me. I mean, I don't wake up in the morning and think like, if he doesn't go with me, I don't want to go. I think, what am I going to eat today? I've got to plan out my breakfast, my lunch, and my dinner. But I think these thoughts. I can go days with just being comfortable with some distance felt between me and God. Just kind of a mildly cold heart that i got going on. I'm content with that. As long as I have some food, as long as my family's okay, 
I'm content. And in many ways, this is, is a bit of a destination for me. It's something I hold on to, like, I got to have that. I got to have that. If I didn't have those things, but I had God, would I be okay? And that's what I want to say to us today. If you have Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have everything. Everything. Your life could fall to ruin. Like, just think about whatever would sink your ship. That could happen, and if you have God with you, you have everything. And I know it's easier to say that here, and I can tell you that, but, if, but I'm not living in your world. I don't know how lonely you are. I don't know how sick your, your mom is. I don't know how crazy your kids are. I don't know those things. You're right. But I know, I know that I know that if we have Jesus, if his presence is with us, like Moses said, it's everything. I don't want a promised land unless you go with us. If we have Jesus, we have everything. Why is God's presence so vital? Like, why is it everything to Moses? Like, why does he just tell, why does he, why do, I mean, honestly, he's got a million people that are following him, promised a promised land flowing with milk and honey, and God says, you're going to still go there. Don't worry, you'll get there. The angel knows the way. But Moses said, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. If your presence doesn't go with us, who are we? How are we distinct from any other people on the face of the earth? Because God is the best gift that God can give you. God is the best gift that God can give you. If God could give you something better or more satisfying than himself, would he be God? Would he really be God? If he could just fix that, solve that, give you this amount of money or that amount of health, and you'd just be okay, and you'd be satisfied. If, if, he, if you could be satisfied on those things without him, would he really be God? No, his presence is everything, as we see right here in Moses' interaction with God. I mean, think of like salvation. Like we, we talk about salvation, God, Jesus freeing us from our sins, forgiving us, making us children of God. Those are all really good things. I love those things. But imagine if, if I know somebody in my life that I want to know Jesus. We usually talk to them trying to find out what's wrong in their life and then applying how Jesus can fix it, Right? I mean, just take it to the extreme. Say I'm interacting with somebody who's addicted to drugs, like full-on addicted to drugs. Hey, how's it going? Are you addicted to drugs? Yes, I'm addicted to drugs. Okay, how's that working for you? It's not working well. I hate it. I can't stand it. I'm losing all this money. I want to change. And then I think, wow, great. I know this guy, Jesus. He freed me from a bunch of foul stuff. He can set you free from those drugs. How's that sound? Sounds awesome. I want Jesus. Like, what? I mean, if that happened, I would tell every one of my friends that I led a drug addict to Jesus in like three sentences. I mean, that'd be amazing, right? But essentially what I've done, that's not a bad thing. I want drug addicts to know Jesus. But essentially what I've done is I've set up freedom from drugs as a promised land. That that's what's wrong in your life and you need it fixed and Jesus can fix it for you. Jesus is a means to your end. That end that you have in your mind of being free from all this stuff, as bad as it is, I don't want that in his life either. But Jesus has then become a means to an end, not the end, not the, the promised land. Is Jesus your promised land? Is Jesus everything? Everything. It is a 
tough question to think about and really answer. I mean, it's just like, I mean, how could I even know? I mean, I got this, I mean, it's just like, you're probably getting all introspective thinking like, well, not in that area. Not, I mean, just try to get off of that conversation. This isn't meant to, 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 to press you down into some introspection of see how little you trust Jesus. No, I want him to be lifted up as this, our great hope, our promised land that no matter what, no matter how we struggle, how we're lonely, how poor we are, how rich we are, how great of a job we have, how terrible of a job we had, if he is with us, we are okay. If he is with us, we have everything. And we want to be people that say, God, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. We don't want to go. I mean, just think about, so Jesus, when, he, when John was writing about Jesus' life, you know how John starts? Before he talks about, you know, uh, that, that, that Jesus is like the Lamb of God and all these great things that we love about him taking away our sins, John starts his gospel by saying the Word of God, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, that's how he starts the whole thing. He moves into our world. And that, in, his, in, in essence, is like the beginning of redemption, the beginning of salvation. When God showed up in Egypt, it was like salvation had come. But they were still slaves. They were still in bondage. There was still a lot that needed to be fixed in their life. But God was there, and salvation had come. Jesus became flesh and moved into our world, and that's, that's, that's our redemption. That's our hope for change is him living among us, living among us. He is known as Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us. He's known, in some parts of the Bible, Jesus is known as the Alpha and the Omega, which he's not talking about vitamins. He's talking about, that that was the Greek alphabet. It It was like us saying A and Z. Jesus is saying like, I'm A and I'm Z. I'm everything. I'm not the alpha that leaves, leads to some better omega. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the best gift you get. He's standing in front of us today saying that. I'm enough. I'm enough. More than these promised lands that we can set up in our minds, things that we would love to change, love to be different. Once we get there, then uh, it'll be good. More than those things. I love those things. They're good. God still takes them to the promised land. But more than that is his presence. God with us. God with us. God saves us to dwell with us. I mean, that's, that's really a great one-sentence summary of redemption. He saves us to dwell with us. The book of Exodus ends with them building that dwelling place for God, right? He dwells with them. They're still in the desert, and he dwells with them. God saves us to dwell with us. That's redemption. That's redemption. So, all this talk about God's presence. As I was writing this, I was thinking, what is God's presence? If it is that important that Moses would say, we don't want to go without it, what is his presence? I mean, it's like a a little bit hard to describe. And for one, you might be thinking, wait, isn't God everywhere? Like, doesn't, isn't that a part of being God? Like, that just comes with a package that you can be everywhere. Yes, that, that's one of God's characteristics. He's omnipresent, omni, all, everywhere, present. He's as much here as he is at the cellar door bar, as he is on Jupiter, Antarctica, even North Korea. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. You can't go anywhere and get away from him. So, 
how could Moses say, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go? If God is everywhere, it's like, we don't want to go with you. We, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. You know, it's, 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 if it's, it's if he's saying there's somewhere they could go where God isn't. And that kind of freaks me out, right? If there's somewhere that they could go where God isn't, I mean, that brings up all kinds of fears in me. It's like, what? I could find like a square inch of land where God isn't? No, that's, that's not true. God's everywhere. So what is his presence? The, the Bible also talks of these moments, these instances of manifested presence. God's special presence, where he is especially known. And that's what Moses is talking about when he says, your presence, if it doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. His special manifested presence. It's those, those moments where the people of God encounter the glory of God, and there's joy, there's, there's this healthy fear of God thing. They, you all of a sudden feel, you realize how small you are and how big God is. It's those moments those, those times where God is especially known, especially manifested, especially apparent. His presence does that. That's why people will say things like, yeah, God really showed up today. And if you're like me, you might be thinking like, wait, he showed up? If he showed up, that means he could walk out of here. Like, I, I don't like that. Wait, he just like walked in and then he walked out? But we, we say this kind of language, right? We, we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Like, would you be here, God? And it's like, well, God's already here. Yeah, that's true. We're talking about his, his manifested, apparent presence. That's what Moses was saying. It's not like Moses thought, like, oh, I can, we'll get to the promised land, and then, whoa, God's absent from this place. No. He's talking about his manifest presence. God's presence is was their promised land i i don't experience this stuff much you know i don't i don't want to prop something up today as like you know just go after the experiences and chase you know the the mountaintop experiences and the conference highs and all those sort of things i'm not trying to prop that up but i'm also saying we don't want to neglect that and think that's just you know for bible times or something we want to be people that love his presence Love his presence like that psalmist said, like better is one day. Better is one day in your courts, in your presence, than thousands spent anywhere else. That's, that's what we want. Doesn't mean you're chasing these experiences, but we want to eagerly desire them and hunger and love God's presence. So I, I, there's two ditches that I think we can swerve off into regarding God's presence. One is, one ditch that we can veer off to is, is, um, is thinking that we um, control it, that we can manipulate God's presence. That's, you know, thinking like, oh, if I, I prayed this last time and he showed up, so I'm going to pray it again. And, you know, that, it's that kind of thinking. Or I'll just punch in this combination and there's God, you know, my genie in the bottle. That's a ditch that we want to stay out of. We don't control, manipulate God's presence. It's God. We don't, we don't control God. Another ditch, though, that we can veer off into is that, that we can be um, doubtful about it or uh, cynical about it or think, uh, that used to happen in the Bible, but it does, this is 2013. We have iPhones now. We don't, we don't need God's presence. There's that cynicism that can stir up in us, right? Especially if you, if you are around anybody that, that talks a lot about God's presence and him showing up and meeting them. And you can think like, well, I think they're just... They're emotional and, you know, all these sorts of things that we can start propping up. We want to stay out of those ditches. 
I, the, the analogy that I like that I heard a pastor say this week is that God's manifest presence, those special moments where God is especially known as like a faucet. And we, our hand is not on that faucet handle, ever. We don't control it. We don't turn it on or turn it off. God's sovereign good hand is on that faucet handle. But we can position ourselves under that faucet. We can stand under that faucet or we can stand outside of that faucet. And there's two ways that we can attract that manifest presence of God, if you will. And there's two ways that we can repel it, where we can stand outside the faucet. The two ways that I think we can really repel the manifest presence of God is, is, is pride and complacency. Pride and complacency. Big, big words. Pride and complacency. In our pride, we can start thinking, you know, I got this. I don't need God to intervene. I know enough Bible. I have an intellectual knowledge that God is always with me. I don't need his presence. Pride, 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 pride. I got this, I got this, I got this. That repels the manifest presence of God. You will encounter God, but the Bible says you will encounter his opposition. God opposes the proud. I don't want to be on the other side of that opposition. I don't want to be a proud guy that God is opposing. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. We can also be complacent. I think of this story, uh, Jesus told the story of um, 10 ladies, 10 bridesmaids. They're waiting for the, the groom to arrive at a wedding. And their job was to keep their lamps burning. They were supposed to keep their lamps full of oil and burning until the groom got there. And five of them are prepared to wait. They know it can take long. They must know the groom well, and maybe he's late or something often. So they pack plenty of oil. I'm going to be here all night. The other five are complacent. They're kind of ho-hum about it. And they don't pack any oil. They pack enough just for their lamp, and then it goes out, and the groom's not there. And then he gets there. And you know what happens? He gets there, and he tells those five complacent ones, I don't know who you are. You five, you who are ready, you who thought that I mattered enough to to prepare and uh, to wait, come in to the banquet. The five of you stay out. And they start getting really like, oh, no, can we borrow some oil? He's coming. You know, they, they, when, when the window starts closing, they start to get really eager. I mean, it happens every year with man camp. We're pushing it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And then the day before we go to man camp, you know, people are calling, I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to go. I know you're supposed to go. I've been telling you you're supposed to go for weeks. But they see the, you know, their, their window closing. It's like, ah, oh, I got to get in there. And we'll take them up the hill. It's not like we, you know, lock them out. Until the bus is up the hill, then, you know, that, that time is, is really gone. Are you complacent about the things of God? Like, do you wake up and is it, is it that important to you or is it kind of take it or leave it? Like, uh, as long as I had two scrambled eggs this morning, I'm going to be good. Or is it, no, God, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. Are you packing enough oil? Or do you show up to, to church a little late because all we do is sing in the beginning. So it's kind of like free time. I, I understand how this rolls. And it's not a, a judgment casting thing to weigh. Oh, I got to go to work. church on type mics, keeping role. You know, I'm not keeping role. But like, how important is it? Like, what if God shows up in worship, in the first 20 minutes of worship, and everybody's talking about it? You're like, what? What happened? Man, I, I didn't need to, to, to delay it. Like, are we complacent? If we're complacent and prideful, we'll, we'll step outside of that fountain, that, that, that faucet. So then how do we attract? How can we stand underneath that faucet, asking God to turn it on? We can do that with humility. 
If God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Confessing our sin quickly, not thinking too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves, having a right view of God, humility. I'm willing to bend a knee and say, you're God, I'm not. God is drawn to that. He's also drawn to to our fervent, our passionate worship of him. Like when we sing to him, he likes it. He dwells in the praises of his people, he says. Like he's there. He loves it. He loves when we sing to him. That, this is a great way to stand underneath that faucet. I don't know when he's going to turn it on, and I wouldn't worry too much about it, but let's be humble and let's be passionate. Not complacent, like, well, he turned it on last summer. I'm pretty good still. No, like, I need you, God. I don't want to go anywhere, God, without you. Better is one day, one day in your presence. One day in your presence than thousands elsewhere. One day. Getting passionate in worship isn't just reserved for the emotional people or the young people or the women. Okay? It's not reserved for certain types of people. God is not great and awesome to certain types of people. But yet, when God is, is alive and stirring and it's like worship's rocking, who stands up to dance? Young women. And God, I think, is drawn to it. He loves it. What's more humbling than risking your reputation in front of 300 people that are probably judging you? That's humbling. That's not, that's not emotional. That's, that's humbling. I mean, I, you might think that I'm a, maybe a pretty outgoing person. I'm not. I'm very reserved. I have to sit there in worship, stand there hopefully, and tell myself, raise your hands. Clap. Sing louder. He's good. It's, it's not natural for me. I'm not an emotional guy. Really. Really. I cry maybe once a year, but in God's grace, it's changing and more often. So I'm softening. He's giving me a heart. It's great. But really, it's, 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 it's what, this isn't reserved for certain types of people. And it's not left out to people who have a, a good education and know their Bible fully. No, God is drawn to it passionate, fervent worship. When, you, when people lift up his name, he can't help but come near. And it's not a manipulative thing at all. It's just, oh God, you are so great. You are so great and awesome. You're worth singing for. You're worth dancing for. You're worth clapping for. You're worth getting on my face humbly before because you're God and I'm not. Next week is Easter, right? It's not the time just to celebrate us dressing up once a year, even though that'll happen and it's great. We're celebrating on Easter Jesus getting out of a grave. Like literally, like he was dead, not figuratively dead or spiritually dead, dead. The Son of God, no heartbeat, no breath, tomb sealed, dead. And he got out of that grave. Like that's why Easter is so important. And I can't think of any other reason that I need than that. To lift up my voice, clap my hands, tell him how awesome he is, humble myself before him. What more reason do we need than he got out of a grave so that we could know God, so that God would dwell among us. Like that he would never leave us. Never leave us. Jesus is alive. He's not on that cross anymore or in that tomb. He's alive. 
And that's why it's okay to get passionate about it in worship. That's why we sing. Singing's fun. Clapping's great. But I want to know the one I'm singing to and clapping for. I want to meet with him. I want to stand here and say, God, I don't want to go anywhere if you're not going with me. It's that important. You're my promised land. All these great things that you could give me, take them. Just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. That's my promised land. That's redemption. That's wholeness for us. And we're going to respond to him today in that spirit. Not to manipulate something or think, okay, Mike told me to dance. I'm going to dance. You know, there's been a few weeks where God's told me to dance. I felt like, like I felt like I want to dance. And then I, here comes the pride, the reasoning, like, no, I'm, I'm employed here. I got to set a good example. <laughs> I'm not a good dancer anyway. You know, it wouldn't, it'd be really distracting. And so I, I reason my way out of it or I'll, or I'll compromise it and do like the, you know, like the, 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 the compromise dance. Like I'll just lift my heels up a little bit. I'm dancing. No, King David, guys, he, he, had, he had everything to lose. He was king of the whole country. And when God's presence came back into Israel, what did he do? He took off his, his outer garments and danced. And his wife was livid. Like, you're a king. Get a hold of yourself. And he says, woman, I'll get even more undignified than this. <laughs> really. Like, none of you are kings. None of us have that much to lose, really. And if God's presence is everything, I mean, why wouldn't we get passionate? Why wouldn't we celebrate it? Even when we can't feel it. It's not like you just walk in and feel it. It's like, oh, now I can dance. I mean, sometimes it's like a, a prophetic dance of like, I'm, I'm, God is this good, so I'm going to dance. Even though I'm depressed or sad today or tired, I'm going to dance. Isn't he worth it? Isn't he enough? So, Let's stand. The worship team is going to come up, and they're going to play a foot stomper. (laughs) Again, hear me loud, hear me clear. Hear me loud, hear me clear. If you start dancing right now, you don't get a bonus point, okay? (laughs) I'm not going to be more proud of you or less proud of you. It's not that. We're responding to a great God. We're responding to a God who dwells among us, within us. Like there's no more tabernacle that we go to. God's presence, it it used to be contained to a building and now it's in us. Like we're responding to that greatness. So respond to him. Be obedient to him. Lift up your hands. Surrender. God, I give up. Get on your knees. Humble yourself. God, I give up. You are great. I'm not so great. I humble myself before you. Respond to him. Because his presence is everything. It's everything. If we don't have that, we don't have anything. What if today was that day that we talk about for years and years and years? Like, what if? What if? We don't know when that faucet is turned on. And that's what's so great about heaven is it's like the faucet's always on. Like, that's what's so great about it. And we don't know here on this earth when we, we, God manifests his presence in a special way. We just don't know. And that's okay. We don't want to know. But we do our part in humility and passion for him. Okay? So Lord Jesus, would you revive us, your people, that we might glorify you, that we might praise you. Lord, I'm not here to praise myself for how I feel 
I'm not here to rejoice in how awesome I am, Lord. We, God, we're here as your people to recognize how awesome you are. God, let us be people marked by your presence. Whenever you decide to turn on that faucet, Lord, we want to be standing underneath it. Every day, waking up, God, turn it on. Pour out your spirit again. We don't want to go anywhere that you're not going. So receive your praise, Lord. Receive what's due to you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time.